following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. This morning, Dr. Piper mentioned that I spent some time yesterday, in fact, Mrs. Groff would tell you many hours yesterday while sitting in the yellow chair at home, reading an old book about a 19th century Presbyterian minister named John L. Girardeau. And while I was reading, I came across an account of a defining moment in his service as a chaplain during the American Civil War. And the record of this incident will serve as a fitting introduction to our sermon this evening, and you'll see why. And I don't frequently do this, but it was just the timing was so perfect. So, uh, One of his colleagues during the war is writing, immediately following um, a particular battle, there occurred an incident worth relating. The ascendancy of the Christ spirit above human nature was never before exemplified. Dr. Girardeau, though one of the most ardent of Southerners, one, in fact, who was never reconstructed, went down on his knees by these dying Union soldiers and offered up fervent prayers to his God for their final salvation. R.E. Seabrook, another man, described this incident to the news and courier in the following language after Dr. Girardeau's death. The death of the lamented Dr. J.L. Girardeau recalls an incident of the desperate assault on the earthworks of Secessionville, James Island, which is down by Charleston, during the late war, which has never been published, and yet is not only worthy of record, but also eminently characteristic of the Christian charity of that good and great man. On the morning of June 16, 1862, I, with others of my command, was detailed to act as one of a bodyguard and as a courier for General N.G. Evans in command of our troops engaged in defense of James Island. Immediately after the gallant repulse of the enemy, General Evans rode into the earthworks in order to make arrangements to meet a second assault momentarily expected. So just to explain that, the Union soldiers had uh, assaulted a position and the Confederates pushed them back and they, the Confederates were expecting a second assault. That's the situation we're in. Now, the author continues, as we approached the rear of the work, the first thing that attracted my attention was a large number, 50 or more, of mortally wounded and dying Federal soldiers who had been collected and placed in the excavation behind the magazine. That's the enemies of the Confederates who had just had victory, mind you. In the midst of these, on his knees, was Dr. Girardeau, offering up an earnest and eloquent prayer for those dying soldiers, so lately the enemies of all he loved. I was so moved, I forgot war and the dangers incident there, too, in view of the fact that Dr. Girardeau was an ardent, if not bitter, advocate of Southern rights. This triumph of Christian virtue over human nature this absolute forgiveness accorded to dying and no longer active enemies emphasized his godlike soul and brings out in radiant light the benediction of this true disciple of the master. The scene is witnessed under such tragic surroundings as worthy of an artist's brush and deserves to be handed down as a study, exemplifying as it does the influence of Christ's teachings in the most trying circumstances. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then he continues in his account of Dr. Girardeau's service as a chaplain during 
that most horrific of conflicts in our nation's history. Well, as, we, um, as described by the author, Giordo's actions in this battlefield scene down in Secessionville, just really three and a half or so hours away, express something of the essence of Christianity, the forgiveness of sins, that upon which everything that we hold dear hangs. Without the forgiveness of sins, it's all for naught. Indeed, that was his plea for these Union soldiers to his God, that their sins would be forgiven and they would be reconciled to Christ before they meet their maker. Well, as we continue working through the Lord's Prayer, we come tonight to the fifth petition quoted by the reporter in that reading, which is found here in Matthew 6, verse 12, in our translation, and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Up to this point, we have considered three prayer requests relating to the interests of God in the world, that his name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, and that his will would be done. And then one prayer request relating more directly to our everyday needs, give us to stay our daily bread. In a certain sense, these four petitions could be prayed by any of God's intelligent creatures. Men or angels could pray these four petitions, because angels can certainly pray, God, provide for us and sustain us in our needs. Angels are dependent, just as we are, upon a loving God. But tonight's text brings us to something that is uniquely human. It, it brings us to the second such prayer request relating to our everyday needs, but one which the angels do not share with us. And what do we pray for when we ask for forgiveness? We pray that God, for Christ's sake, would freely pardon all our sins, which we are the rather encouraged to ask, because by His grace we are enabled from the heart to forgive others. And what this petition teaches us is that as born and bred sinners, we must, through Christ, boldly plead for release from the debt of sin which we owe. As born and bred sinners, we must, through Christ, boldly plead for release from the debt of sin we owe. We'll consider this lesson under two headings tonight, the debt of sin and then the forgiveness of sins. In the first place, the debt of sin. Uh, we are all heirs of Adam's sin. We are debtors by birth. And so when we pray, forgive us our debts, we're actually praying, forgive us for that which we've inherited, as well as, as we'll see later on, that which we've committed. Romans 5.12 says, Through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. How did all sin? They all sinned in him. We are heirs of an original sin debt that Adam incurred and passed along to us. A good illustration of this is kind of the, the federal relation that we have to our leaders and to our government in particular. If the United States government takes out a loan, borrows money from another nation, you know who needs to pay it, don't you? Not this United States government character. That's kind of a legal fiction. But you and me. We're implicated in the debt incurred by our federal government, aren't we? And certainly by our state government and even our local governments. You know, mothers and fathers, adults here, if you vote, sometimes you'll see ballot measures. Shall we take up a loan to, to pay for some new utility resource or some capital investment? And certainly in different churches, even churches I've been a part of, we've had to vote on whether or not to take up a debt that we'll then have to pay back as a people corporately. Now, banks don't usually like giving loans to churches because they're pretty high risk. But needless to say, or nonetheless, that still happens. 
where we collectively unite in purpose to make ourselves debtors for some other ends. Well, that's just an illustration of the reality that we're all born into. We're born into debt in Adam. Adam grievously sinned against a perfectly holy God and became a debtor to God's justice. But not only are we born into debt, not only are we heirs of original guilt and then also uh, suffering under corruption, we are active transgressors in our lives, even from birth. We are willful rebels. We are willing participants in Adam's sin. Children, do you ever think about Adam and Eve? And do you ever think, you know what? I wouldn't have done that. I wouldn't have eaten the forbidden fruit. I wouldn't have taken the fruit from Eve if I was Adam. Well, I have news for you. Adam was more righteous than any of us ever were. Because Adam did that before the fall. And truly, each and every one of us would have done the very same thing. In fact, especially now, after the fact, we all are willing participants in Adam's sin. We joyfully and gleefully rebel against God apart from the saving grace and mercy and regenerating grace of God. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. According to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience, among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So do not be quick to think, ah, surely I would have done better than Adam. Don't look around with a sneer and say, look at all these horrible infidels around the world. I'm so much better than them. Brothers and sisters, my friends, boys and girls in particular, no matter to what family you've been born, you are in desperate need of God's pardoning grace. Because I have news for you. You're all sinners. You all labor not only under a debt that you've inherited, but a debt that you've piled sky high in your own doings, in your own deeds and misdeeds. And you know what? We can't pay that debt. We cannot satisfy the debt we owe. I was reading in the news not too long ago, uh, maybe a few months ago, maybe it was last year, I don't know. This guy went to dentistry school at the top-rated dentistry school in the nation, and he incurred all kinds of debt. And he got out of school, and he was making something like $250,000 a year as a dentist with this degree from the top dentistry school in the world. And he couldn't even pay back his monthly debt payments with that much income. No matter how much he tried to live frugally, he had incurred so much debt at such a high interest rate that literally he will never be able to pay it back, even making a quarter million dollars a year in his day job. It was a fascinating write-up, uh, just one of many uh, incidents of people getting into inordinate amounts of debt for their education. He can, he can merely manage his debt. Can't even pay back the full interest payments. Well, our situation is so much worse. Our situation is so much worse. Consider what we just sang from Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. If God were to hold us accountable for that debt which we owe, 
There's nothing we could do to satisfy it. We could not pay it back. But, but, there is forgiveness with him. Why is this forgiveness so essential to us? Why is it at the very heart of all that we hold dear as Christians? Why is it at the very center of our message as a church that man might be reconciled to God by the forgiveness of God in Christ? Because the consequence of not being able to pay back that debt which you've inherited and which you've added to, the consequence of that is eternal separation from the comforting presence of God as father and friend. The knowledge of God merely as a uh, creditor or a collector, namely as a judge who rightly and righteously would condemn us in our sins. And condemn us to what? An everlasting hellfire. Indeed, as Dr. Giordo would say in his famous sermon, Judgment Day, there are millions marching their way into hell, which is effectively a debtor's prison without any comforts, only knowing torments. That is the severity of the consequence of not being able to pay that debt. So what hope is there for mankind, sentenced under so great a weight of debt to so perfectly a holy and righteous God? Boys and girls, what hope do we have? As born and bred sinners, we must, through Christ, Boldly plead for release from the debt of sin we owe. Confessing, as we read in Exodus 34, that God pardons iniquity, transgression, and sin. That he's full of loving kindness and compassion for sinners like you and like me. Singing even, putting it on our lips and in our hearts, that there is forgiveness with our God. That he may be feared and worshipped as he deserves. And so considering then the debt of sin and its awful consequences, we can, we can now pivot to consider in greater, uh, in greater focus the forgiveness of sins for which we pray in this petition. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven or as we forgive our debtors. And when we pray for the forgiveness of sins, we're, we're actually praying for several things. We're praying for acquittal, for forgiveness itself and pardon, but we're also praying for acceptance in Christ, and then continuing favor and grace. And we continue to seek day by day the Lord's forgiveness for our daily faults, even as we pray with boldness, knowing that Christ has given us a testimony. So first, let's consider what we're praying for both ourselves and for others, for our neighbors too. This is an evangelistic prayer in many ways. We're praying for acquittal and forgiveness. We're praying for Christ to be vindicated for that which he came to do. What was the cause of Christ's coming? We read it in Matthew chapter 1. He came to save his people from their sins, to pardon all their guilt. The cause for which Christ came and lived and then died, that cursed death on the cross, was the securing of righteousness for his people, the securing of forgiveness for those whom God had plucked out of the fire, the securing of, of positive righteousness as well. In Romans chapter 3, Paul details this uh, theologically, being justified as a gift by His grace, that is, being made righteous as a gift by God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. You see, that public display was the cross. 
This was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed by you and by me. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I think he puts it a bit more plainly in Colossians chapter 3. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. We might substitute the word debts there for transgressions. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. We're praying for acquittal and forgiveness on the basis of Christ's work. Particularly his finished work on the cross and in his resurrection. And we pray for in the second place for acceptance then in and through Christ and his continuing favor and grace in our lives. Ephesians 1, 6 and 7, in this great doxology, Paul uh, gives praise um, of the glory of God's grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. You see all this commercial language? We're talking about debts, owing people money or things or whatever. Well, redemption is also a commercial vocabulary word. It's a term. It's, it's when, when the debt's been paid, it's been redeemed. Indeed, we've been redeemed. We've been granted the forgiveness of our trespasses through faith in Christ according to what? Here's another commercial term. The riches of God's grace. Our Father, who is infinite in glory and splendor and also in the riches of grace, comes to our aid and he bails us out, but not without payment. Indeed, at the cost, the price of the precious blood of Christ. 2 Peter 1 verse 2, remember what it was that I used as our salutation tonight. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And as we come to know God, not merely know about God, we come to know the communion which we enjoy through Christ who suffered and died for sinners and paid the penalty for our sins. We come to know redemption, not merely to know about it, but to experience it in communion with God. Indeed, that's what we're pleading for when we pray. Forgive us our debts, as we have forgiven our debtors, cause us to know you, to be welcomed once again into your presence without any hindrance or encumbrance of sin. In the third place, as Christians, we continue to seek the Lord's forgiveness for daily failings and to plead for assurance of his love, for peace of conscience, and for joy in the Holy Spirit. We might take two examples from the prophets of what this might look like in our own prayer lives. In Hosea chapter 14, verse 2, the prophet um, is told to pray this prayer, take away all iniquity and receive us graciously that we may present the fruit of our lips. And then Jeremiah, likewise, in Jeremiah 14, prays, although our iniquities testify against us, O Lord, act for your name's sake. Truly our apostasies have been many. We have sinned against you. But beloved, I'm here this evening to tell you that though your sins be many, God's grace is more. Though your sins be many 
And though you cannot satisfy them, yet the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is so much greater. And he has paid it all. The debt has been canceled out. There's a promise in 1 John 1, 9 then, which we frequently recite here in this place. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we come to him with boldness and eagerly confessing our sins and seeking for his forgiveness in order to find peace in order to be filled with joy, in order to be assured of his love for us as, as a father assures his child of his love for them by welcoming them into an embrace. David gives an example of this pleading for forgiveness, pleading for peace and joy and assurance in Psalm 51. He writes, Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. What would it be to hear joy and gladness? Perhaps in the morning service, boys and girls, perhaps when we, when we do that confession of sin, we read the law, we pray a little bit on our own, and then we pray together with, with the words in the bulletin. You know what I'm talking about. What's the very next thing that Dr. Piper or I do after we pray uh, as a group? We declare an assurance of pardon. Well, when those verses are read, that should fill you with joy and delight. Because what we're telling you from God's word, not from us, but from God, what we're telling you is that if you have indeed sought for God's forgiveness with sincerity of heart, then he is faithful and righteous to forgive you. That is, you are accepted into his presence through Christ by the forgiveness of sins. That is what it is to hear joy and gladness. David continues, Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. We're after all of these things, but these are merely benefits of the great prize itself, and that is communion with God through Christ. That is what we're pleading for when we're asking God to forgive us our debts. And then finally, we pray with boldness through Christ who has given us a testimony of grace. It's a very interesting clause that Christ includes here in this model prayer where he says, not only forgive us our debts, we, or we might end there, as, Paul, or as Luke puts it um, in that publication of a similar teaching, forgive us our sins, but rather, Matthew and Luke uh, append this second clause, which Christ certainly taught his disciples, as we also have forgiven our debtors. We might say, just as we forgive those who trespass against us or those who are indebted to us. And what, what, is it that, what is it that God is teaching? What is it that Jesus is teaching? Is he saying that we are to bargain with God? Something like, hey, God, I've forgiven other people and so you should forgive me. Or perhaps, Lord, if I forgive so-and-so, would you forgive me? Is that how this works? No. That's not what we're praying. We don't come as collections officers to God. God is not indebted to us. The whole point is we're indebted to him. No. We come with confidence, Christ tells us. Confidence in Christ and through Christ and his work in us. You see, Christ 
has both accomplished something on our behalf. He has paid the penalty of our sins. But as his disciples, as those who are walking in his teaching, as those who are obedient to his commandments of love and those evangelical duties which he presses upon us, we are to be a forgiving people, therefore able to come to God with confidence that he will hear us as we are told. Because God has forgiven us, we can be forgiving and then pray with boldness for forgiveness of sins day by day in turn. It's a holy feedback loop. It starts with God's forgiveness. You can't mess that. Don't mess that up. But it's a feedback loop. We go to God assured of his love for us, seeking greater assurance but thinking back on how he has changed us and sanctified us and put a new spirit in us. It's described in several places in Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. And in Colossians 3.13. Bearing with one another and forgiving each other who uh, ever as a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And as you see that, that mark of a forgiving spirit in your life, you can give praise to God that he has so blessed you with a transformation of character because none of us are born as forgiving people. And then you can go to his throne of grace with that much more confidence and boldness according to what Christ has told you to do. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Christ will go on into Matthew 18 to, to teach the opposite truth, that he who is not forgiving, he who is um, vindictive, he who demands payback, indeed shall be cast out of the presence of the Most High God. In that parable, we won't read the entire thing, but just to summarize it, you may remember, you have a, a servant who's indebted to his master, and he's indebted to him at this outrageous amount that he could never, ever pay back. And he comes and he pleads for mercy and the master grants it. And then that servant goes off. And the next scene is he, that servant, who's been forgiven and, uh, for all intents and purposes, an infinite debt, uh, is now demanding like, you know, $100 back from this other servant. A word gets back to the master. The master calls him back and says, you wicked servant. How dare you do that? You have been forgiven so much and yet demand this pittance from your brother. And he condemns him. Well, that's essentially the same teaching here that Christ is giving to us. If you have been forgiven and truly you benefit from that forgiveness and it takes root in your heart, you will become a forgiving person then able with all confidence to go back for further forgiveness when needed, which again is an everyday reality. And then you will in no wise be cast out. How sweet it is to be loved by God. How sweet it is to be forgiven through faith in Christ. Consider another moving account from the early life and conversion of the 15-year-old John L. Girardeau. Right after he started college, that's what they did back then. He was also brilliant. And this... Um, Again, breaking out of the norm here. I don't usually read long passages from other books, but this was, this was very good. Dr. Gerardo's account of that awful month of conviction of sin was enough to send terror to any unconverted soul. 
This is Dr. Gerardo's son-in-law kind of paraphrasing what happened. He does a really good job. He had just entered college when a gloom like that of eternal night fell upon his soul. His conscience pointed to his sinful nature. The unbearable holiness of God and the flaming bar of judgment. In everything about him, he saw the warnings of coming vengeance, while the lurid glare of an eternal hell was ever before his fervid imagination. His case seemed hopeless. He could not see how anyone would not, or how anyone would want to laugh. He could not see how anyone could enjoy a life that was nothing more than a vestibule to the dungeon of eternal woe. He was afraid to put out his light at night, lest the darkness should never end. He was afraid to go to sleep, lest he should awake in the company of the damned. He's a 15-year-old. He had no appetite for food. He could not study. No earthly thing interested him. He spent his time reading the Bible, calling on God for mercy, and bemoaning his lost estate. In vain did he strive to make peace with God. He wept over the consequences of his sins, but there was no sense of pardon. He tried to repent and reform, but there was no peace. He strove to make covenants and agreements with God, but the earth was iron and the heavens were brass. This lasted about a month. And then one beautiful morning while on his knees begging for mercy, just a couple, couple blocks north of the battery in Charleston, it occurred to him that he had already done everything that it was possible for him to do and that all of these things had availed him nothing. He would therefore... Just surrender himself to Jesus and leave the case in his hands. This was faith. Instantly, the Holy Spirit assured him that he was accepted in Christ, that his sins were forgiven, and that God loved him with an everlasting love. He sprang to his feet, clapped his hands, and poured out the overflowing joy of his soul in praise. All nature had changed. In the description of his feelings, he said that the sun shone brighter the birds sang sweeter and the breezes blew softer than he had ever known them to do. His flesh as well as his heart felt the delight of the presence of a reconciled God. He could see no reason why any intelligent creature could care to do anything in this world but love and praise God. And this happy condition continued for two or three days. And then by reason of some compromising course, this strange and delightful experience passed away so slowly that it was gone before he realized it. But this experience left its stamp on his whole life. The trace of that month with its horrors and its joys can be seen in his thinking, his preaching, and his living. It explains in a measure the awful vividness with which he would describe the terrors that would befall the wicked and the inexpressible delight that would come to the believer at the appearing of the Lord Jesus. And what was at the heart of Gerardo's need, but also the satisfaction of that need? It was the need for reconciliation with God, a reconciled God, as his son-in-law puts it. It was his need for forgiveness of his sins. And so we see in this little biographical anecdote the very essence of Christianity what lies at the heart of it, what uh, J. Gresham Machen called, uh, for the reason for which J. Gresham Machen called Christianity the religion of the broken heart. Broken hearted over sin, broken hearted over a lack of righteousness in our own lives and in the world around us and seeking for God to be vindicated, for his cause to be raised up, for his worship to be uh, proclaimed, for forgiveness of sins to be grasped. 
There are a number of observations we can make about this man's experience of conversion. It left an indelible impression on his life. He went on to have a very fruitful life in ministry. It brought him great relief from spiritual anguish and melancholy. He was suffering for a month as a 15-year-old boy in deep sadness and pain, and then he's delivered out of that into great joy. What, what was it? It was sweet and refreshing. Don't you love that description of how it lent a newness and refreshing to all his experience of life, the sun shining brighter, the birds singing sweeter, the breeze more comfortable. It's a bit sentimental, but do you know something of that yourself? When you can rest in Christ, when you're resting in God, doesn't all the world seem new? Even things which perhaps annoyed you, like a, a dense fog or cloudy weather, it seems somehow beautiful in its own way. But above all, what we can say about Dr. Gerardo's experience of forgiveness, uh, with, uh, reconciliation with God, forgiveness from God for his sins, was that it came to him as a gift of God. He tried to manufacture it. He tried to force it. He did all the things we're told to do. And he couldn't make it up. But in an instant, when he laid it down at Christ's feet, his sin, his need, his burden... The Spirit swept in and through him and assured him of God's everlasting love for him. You see, as born and bred sinners, we must, through Christ, boldly plead for release from the debt of sin we owe. Because we cannot pay it. We cannot satisfy it. It's too great for us. It weighs us down. God alone can take care of it. So this evening, do you long, are you sitting here longing for release from the debt of sin? that dangles about your soul and weighs you down, then you must first recognize not only the horrors of sin and its consequences, but also this singular fact that God alone can break the chains that hold your burden fast to you. You must go to God for forgiveness of sins. My friend, there's nothing you can think, say, or do to deserve God's forgiveness. There's no magic trick. There's no technique. There's no script. There's no mechanical means to follow in order to get saved. There's no technology that this present world offers to you. In fact, only distractions. But the great need at the base of everything, God alone can deliver. The pardoning grace of God is received through faith in Christ as a gift from His loving hand. And you know, I mentioned the angels before, how they can pray the first four petitions. Perhaps, it's a bit speculative, but certainly the first three. And that this one they cannot pray. See, angels have no interest in Christ. He does not share in their nature. Christ came as a man and a man alone. So the fallen angels have no hope. And those who are unfallen, they have no need for forgiveness, do they? They can never experience what you and I experience. Boys and girls, you ever think about angels, how great and powerful they are in the descriptions in Daniel and Ezekiel and in Revelation? Do you ever think, wow, angels are so cool? Well, guess what? Angels have no ability, no power, no insight into that which God offers to each of you. Forgiveness of sins, the experience of redemption, of communion with God the Father through Christ the Son and His pardoning grace. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless your name. Indeed, you have given us a great gift. 
Our interest is in Christ who is seated in heavenly places at your right hand, who even now is interceding on our behalf. We thank you for the testimonies that we've considered this evening. We thank you above all for Christ's words of encouragement and instruction and hope that we might pray even now, forgive us our sins and our debts and our transgressions as we forgive those who are indebted to us, who sin against us, who commit transgressions against us. Oh Lord, we plead with you to pour out your mercy and your grace to apply to our hearts this teaching this evening, that especially our sons and our daughters, but each one of us would realize in ever full and measure, in ever fuller measure, the pardoning grace of God in Christ Jesus with whom we have to do. And as we leave from this place, we do dedicate ourselves to your service knowing full well that it is only by your spirit and your power that we might bear any fruit. And we plead with you, O Lord, to make us useful in that service, to take our gifts of tithes and offerings and to cause them to to bear much fruit in the extension of your kingdom and the building up of your church. Lord, we plead with you to cause us to delight in Christ, for he's worthy of all acceptation and praise. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.